0: This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. For many years, scientists have been searching for the mysterious engram, the place in the brain where memories are kept. And, thanks to advances in genetics and neurobiology, it looks like they're now getting close to finding it.
1: Engram is a really old word, and Griffey was the process of writing down a memory in the brain. And it's not exactly a snapshot, but you can sort of think of it as a little snapshot in your brain.
0: Plus, contagious cancers in dogs and devils, and our gene of the month prefers the cold. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for December 2014 with me, Dr Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. This month I'm reporting back from the Genetic Society autumn meeting held at the Royal Society at the end of November. It focused on the genetics and neurobiology of learning and memory. Several of the talks focused on the hunt for something called the engram, the exact part of the brain where memories are stored. Opening the meeting was Sheena Jocelyn from the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto who told me about the search.
1: So, it it really starts with, you know, how do we store and use information? Everyone knows the brain is involved, but exactly where in the brain? And people have been looking for, you know, where in the brain a memory's been stored for for centuries, and I think we're, we're sort of starting to corner where exactly a memory trace is in the brain. In your talk, you used a wonderful
0: word, engram. What's, what's the search for the engram?
1: Yeah, So engram is a really old word, um, pr- first proposed as, uh, by uh, Richard Semen, who was a German um, scientist. And he thought engram was the, the, those bits in the brain that store a particular memory. So engraphy n- was the process of writing down a memory in the brain. So, say
0: I was to uh, go somewhere, it would be written into a little particular bit of my brain.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's not exactly a snapshot, but you can sort of think of it as a little snapshot in your brain. Like a photo album. Exactly, exactly. It turns out our memory is not like a photo album, but for this sort of analogy, that's, that's fair enough.
0: So, in the intervening time, where have we come in understanding this, and how are you
1: trying to figure out where in the brain our memories are made? Well, it turns out that the the sort of history of looking for the engram or the memory trace is is pretty colourful and has a a wonderful past and and a lot of people have looked and it's very elusive. People can't seem to find exactly where in the brain a memory is stored and it's been sort of frustrating scientists for for generations. But now with some more modern techniques we can sort of look at turning on and off populations of cells in the brain to really try and corner the engram. I don't know if we've caught it but it's certainly cornered.
0: What do we know so far about I guess, what a memory is. What does it look
1: like in the brain? Right, so it's sort of like describing what um, an elephant is by grabbing little parts of it. We, we know parts about the memory, but we can't describe the entire thing. We know that memories are stored in collections of brain cells or neurons in the brain. We know that they can become tightly bound together so that they become an ensemble or a group of neurons. We know that these neurons are pretty sparse, so very few of them across the brain can hold a memory. Other than that, we're still trying to find out more about the memory. We, we, we haven't exactly figured out what it is yet and how exactly it's formed. So tell me a bit about your work and you're working on the response to fear. How are you trying to dissect that and figure out where these fear memories are stored? We're really interested in how the memory, how the, a fear memory is encoded in the brain. And we know that it's encoded primarily in one particular area of the brain called the amygdala. And it's been known for a while that that area is really important in fear. And what we're trying to do is turn on and turn off populations of cells in the amygdala to try and turn on a memory or turn off a memory, and in that way really get it how the memory is formed in the brain. So how are you actually experimentally doing this? How do you test for for fear and fear memories? So it's really easy in people. You can ask them, you can look at them. Are you afraid? (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Just looking at their face, it's amazing. But we use um, experimental um, rodents. And it's really hard to, when you ask them, are you afraid? They just sort of look at you blankly. So what we do is try and tap into their responses, what they normally do when they're afraid. And it turns out if you're a, a small rodent, like a mouse, when you're afraid you display freezing. So if you're being predated by a cat, you sort of stop and you pretend like you're, you're not moving and then hopefully the cat will, will walk on past you. So we use this response called freezing to sort of find out when a mouse is afraid. And by understanding this, what have you found out so far
0: about how this, this
1: freezing response to fear works? Well it's really interesting. We've, we've uh, been sort of playing around with how freezing works and how we can turn it on and turn it off by just playing around with a very, very small population of cells in the amygdala. And what we found is that a memory is, is very sparsely encoded. So very few cells in the brain can hold a memory. And they can hold multiple memories. So now what we're trying to do is figure out how different memories interact in the brain, how they can be linked in the brain, just by looking at how we can manipulate cells. And in your talk, you
0: presented some really nifty techniques that are finally enabling researchers to really manipulate at the genetic level, turn genes on and off, turn cells on and off really specifically. How are you employing some of those new techniques?
1: The research world has really been opened up with techniques. It's sort of the decade of techniques in, in neuroscience and in genetics. And we're trying to take advantage of the different tools that are available. So we use viral vectors to express normal genes, so overexpressed genes. We can also express optogenetics, then make a uh, cell responsive to light. We can use chemical genetics to make a cell responsive to different chemicals. And by using, really taking advantage and and pulling in from all different areas, we can try and use different techniques to manipulate our system. And so using all these things
0: together, can you paint me a picture, I guess, of how you think a fear memory gets written into the
1: brain from what we know so far? Right. So what we do is we, we pair um, a, a specific tone with a, a mild electric foot shock, not enough to injure an animal, but certainly enough to make them afraid. So um, we think that when the, these two um, stimuli come together, that neurons that express either the tone memory or express the uh, fear memory are co-activated. And this co-activation binds these neurons together so that anytime these neurons are active together in a group, an animal will display fear. So they
0: hear the sound, you give them a little electric shock, these two groups of cells they switch on, and then
1: forevermore they're entwined. Exactly, exactly. So anytime you excite any part of this trace, presumably the entire trace becomes active and the animal becomes afraid. It's like, oh, I, one little thing can twig your memory and then bring the whole memory to life. And we think this is how that happens.
0: So when they hear the sound again, they'll freeze and feel afraid. Absolutely, absolutely. And so on a, on a kind of a, a, a genetic or molecular level, are we getting close to understanding where, where the engram is, where the fear is encoded in the brain?
1: Absolutely, we're really getting close. And I think this is not only important to understanding how a fear memory is made, but understanding how memories are made, how we can restore memories in, in patients that have too much memory, like post-traumatic stress disorder or patients that have too little memory like an Alzheimer's disease and really understanding the fundamentals will help us translate these findings into helping people. The work that you do is in mouse. Where is the field coming to in trying to understand these processes in humans? The mouse work and the basic research work I think is is critical to informing what we do with people. I work in a children's hospital and I don't see us doing any of these techniques in people right away. But it tells us how we should approach the problem. How can we make drugs target a specific area of the brain rather than systemically treating a person. And I think that these sort of basic research findings will really inform how we go forward with people.
0: That was Sheena Jocelyn from the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. Also at the Genetic Society autumn meeting, we heard from Scott Waddle from the University of Oxford, one of the scientific organisers of the conference. He's studying tiny fruit flies in order to figure out how they decide what to do when faced with conflicting choices. I asked him to explain what he's up to.
2: The general idea is to try and understand what the neural mechanisms are uh, in the brain that allow an animal to do the right thing at the right time. Uh, we more often than not focus on <coughs> hunger and thirst-directed behaviour, so how does a, an animal approach food when it's hungry and not approach food when it's satiated? How does it look for a drink of water when it's thirsty, rather than look for a piece of food? So how does it select and prioritise one, one behaviour over another?
0: I guess when it boils down to it, we kind of, we eat, drink, sleep, reproduce, how do we decide what to do?
2: Exactly, so that obviously if if all of these possibilities provide the animal with a conflict, they have to decide which of these potential things should I bother engaging at any, any given time, and of course if they're more sleepy than hungry than the thing they should do to promote their survival is to sleep rather than feed and vice versa.
0: So how are you trying to understand what's going on here? What, what organisms are you looking at?
2: So we specifically use the fruit fly uh, and the reason for that is that the genetics and the small nervous system allow us to bring these mechanisms down to cellular resolution and the genetics in turn allows us to manipulate molecules within these circuits.
0: So what are you actually looking at? How do you test what's going on when a fly is is making a decision what to do?
2: So typically we train flies uh, with an odour accompanied with a food reward or an odour accompanied with a water reward. And then the thing that we actually measure is when given a choice between two odours, we ask which one do they prefer. And obviously in an experiment where we've rewarded one of the odours with food, we would expect them to approach that food-associated odour in the later test. And and the same kind of thing is true for water-associated odours.
0: It seems incredible to me that something as as small as a fruit fly and as simple, I guess, as an insect like that, you can train it to do something.
2: You can train them very well and the memory that you form is incredibly robust, lasting a few days.
0: So how do you then try to go in at a molecular level and work out what's going on when they've learnt to distinguish and to to go to the, the smell that they like?
2: So the molecular level was first approached as they were the classical mutagenesis approach, like everything else in flies, people just mutagenized them. But instead of looking for morphological defects on the exterior, a damaged wing, a slightly strangely shaped eye, or so forth, people screened for flies that couldn't learn or remember. People don't so often use that kind of approach now. Instead, we use genetic-based approaches that allow us to manipulate specific neurons. And these tools allow us to switch neurons on and off.
0: And what does a fly's brain actually look like? How do you study it and and look inside at what's going on?
2: So we can just pop it out of the head capsule, kind of like shelling a pea, and and look at it under the the microscope. Um, Or, in principle, we can also image neural activity in the brain of a live fly just by peeling off a little piece of the head capsule. And looking at the brain with a microscope and the live animal.
0: So you, you kind of pin it down, you for want of a better word, prize open its skull and look at what the nerves are doing?
2: Pretty much, yeah.
0: That seems quite fiddly to me.
2: It requires some skill, That's true.
0: So when you do this, when you're actually looking at the brain and seeing what's lighting up, what's it telling you about how flies are making these kinds of decisions in their life?
2: That's a difficult question. Depends which neurons you're looking at. So Uh, Up until now, we've mostly looked at neurons that represent values, so a good or a bad uh, event in the fly's life. Um, And then we can see that certain neurons are activated by food rewards, for example. Uh, In other experiments, we've looked at neurons that are required for the flies to do the appropriate thing with its memory. So there, the assumption is that activation of that neuron is part of the process where the brain is making the appropriate decision to either run away from something or run towards something.
0: And in terms of actually starting to understand more general neural mechanisms, how organisms learn, do you think some of the things that you found out will apply in higher organisms, like humans mammals?
2: I'm quite sure. I mean, the conservation of genes tells us that many of the processes at least use conserved molecular mechanisms, and certainly some of the work we've done has uncovered conserved molecules, so the fly equivalent of neuropeptide Y, which is involved in energy homeostasis in mammals, is clearly involved in uh, food-seeking related behaviours in the fruit fly. Um, Dopamine, which is the known reward signal in the mammalian brain, is clearly the reward signal in the fly brain, and so on. So I I think it's going to be generally informative.
0: We've heard at the meeting a lot of people talking about the idea of the, the n like where in the brain is this knowledge encoded. How close do you think we've got so far in uncovering it and how long do you think it will be before we really understand how, how it works?
2: Well, I think I can be pretty optimistic here. So I think we have at least located a synaptic junction, a, a junction between two sets of neurons that where the memory is probably represented. So I think that is essentially the engram, or part of the engram in the fly brain. So I think we've already gotten there. The question is, you know, what resolution can we actually get to? Can we say it's a specific synaptic connection? So yeah, I think it's only a matter of time.
0: And kind of philosophically, it's a bit strange to think that all the memories we have, everyone we've ever known, is just somehow written into the junctions between our nerve cells.
2: I find that quite reassuring that you can explain it rather than not, <laughs> um, but yeah, some people... There's no kind of spooky but, thing. No, <laughs> no, but some, but some people are very uncomfortable with being able to explain their life and some sort of physical pro- process in, the, in their brain, but uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't affect me that way at all.
0: What are you now trying to figure out?
2: We would like to know what the mechanisms are that are involved in changing the efficiency of, this, of these synapses the same synaptic connection may be bi changed by either a, a pleasant learning event or a, an unpleasant learning event. And so we'd like to know how that's, that difference is generated. Uh, and as I said, we're ultimately involved in um, trying to understand how the fly chooses whether to approach a food-relevant cue rather than a water-relevant cue. So that's a kind of higher integrative kind of mechanism. And we're very interested in potential individual differences between animals and how that's represented in neural circuit properties.
0: Scott Waddle from Oxford University. Also at the meeting, we were treated to a lecture from Cambridge University's Elizabeth Murchison, winner of the Society's 2014 Balfour Prize. She works on two unusual cancers, Tasmanian devil facial tumours and CTVT that's canine transmissible venereal tumours. But unlike all other cancers we know of these diseases are contagious and can be transferred between animals and unfortunately for Tasmanian devils it could be driving them to extinction. I asked her to tell me the story.
3: We normally think of cancer as a disease that arises when a cell in our body acquires mutations that causes it to grow into a tumour and sometimes that can spread inside the body. Um, However, we normally think that cancer doesn't survive beyond the body of its hosts. So these two cancers in dogs and in Tasmanian devils have actually acquired adaptations which have allowed them to survive beyond the deaths of the original dog and devil that first gave rise to them and to spread through the population uh, as a transmissible cancer. It sounds like pretty scary stuff. It's pretty scary yeah and it's lucky that this has only happened twice that we know of in nature but um, uh, it's really a type of disease that we didn't really uh, know much about previously.
0: So let's start with the devils. Tell me a little bit about um, the Tasmanian devils and this cancer that
3: affects them and what you found out about it? Yeah, so the Tasmanian devil is uh, a carnivorous marsupial, it's actually the largest living uh, marsupial carnivore. It lives only in Tasmania, which is um, just to the south of the mainland of Australia. And um, the Tasmanian devils are actually threatened with extinction due to the emergence of this transmissible cancer. The cancer was first observed in 1996 and since then it's spread rapidly through Tasmania and is now affecting, um, I think, more than 60 to 60% of their habitat and it's caused massive population declines in the most severely affected areas. The disease is threatening to cause extinction of the species within only uh, uh, 20 to 30 years, so it's a really serious situation uh, for the devils. And seems quite strange for a disease that only appears to have emerged in the past couple of decades. Yes, it's a, it's a highly virulent disease. It's, uh, it's spread by biting between devils. Devils get tumors on their face or inside their mouth, and uh, when they bite another devil, they actually physically implant the living cancer cells, uh, and somehow they're able to escape the immune system and grow into a new tumor in, in that next devil. It seems to be highly transmissible, um, and it causes death of affected devils within only a few months of the appearance of symptoms, so it's a, it, it's a really nasty disease. How did people figure out
0: that this wasn't just a virus that was being transmitted from devil to devil and was actually the cancer cells?
3: The key experiments came from looking at genetics actually. Uh, We found that the genetic um, patterns that you see in the DNA of the devil cancer are all very similar to other cancers and very different to uh, the genetics of the hosts. So normally if, if a cancer arises from, um, from a cell in the body it would retain most of the genetic variants which are present within that person's normal DNA. Um, what we see in the devil is that the, the cancer actually uh, has genetic variants which are similar to, more similar to another devil than they are to the Cancer zone host so it's really clear from the genetics that it's actually not arising from the devils uh, carrying the cancer but rather arose a long time ago from a different devil and has spread through the population by biting. These must be pretty exceptional cancer cells to be able to be transmitted and
0: survive like this. What sort of things do we know about that enable them to survive and that they don't just get rejected by the new host's immune system?
3: Yeah, well, this is a very good question because um, everything that we know about immunology suggests that uh, transmissible cancers are impossible because they come from a different individual. They should be rejected. Somehow the devil's immune system is not able to d- reject this cancer, uh, and this is a really active area of research. Hannah Siddle at the University of Southampton has recently been uh, doing very groundbreaking work where she's found that uh, molecular markers which are normally expressed on the surface of all cells seem to to be uh, down regulated in um, devil cancer cells, meaning that uh, the, the immune system doesn't really see the markers at all, so it's kind of unable to grab on to anything. In a way, these cancer cells are kind of uh, wearing an immune invisibility cloak because they, uh, they're not expressing the correct markers.
0: Given how rapidly the disease is spreading and how threatened the Tasmanian devils are now, are there any hopes, realistically, for something like a treatment or a vaccine or just to contain the disease?
3: Of course. Well, at the moment there's a lot of effort going into um, captive breeding programs, so keeping devils alive and breeding in captivity just in case the disease does cause extinction in the wild. And this is a really important program and it's essential to try to keep devils alive and breeding. Uh, even if they do disappear in the wild Um, of course we have a lot of hope that there will be eventually a vaccine or a cure for the disease or perhaps the devils themselves might acquire some resistance to the disease but unfortunately at the moment we still uh, haven't got any of of these things and it's something that we're really working on very hard
0: and now to move from devils to dogs tell me about the
3: dog tumour that you've been working on Just like the devils, it's spread by the transfer of living cancer cells between dogs. But this dog cancer is actually sexually transmitted. So the way the cells get transmitted is when dogs are mating with each other, uh, the tumours which normally appear in the genitalia, tumour cells get transmitted from one dog to another. And in the same way as uh, we've seen with the devils, these tumour cells somehow don't get rejected and have been able to spread in dogs. And actually this tumour is now found all around the world free-roaming dogs which are mating randomly are the reservoir for the disease, so this is why we don't see the disease normally in the UK. However, um, there, there are a number of cases of CTVT, this dog cancer, in the UK which, um, in dogs which have been imported from abroad, from Romania for instance, there's often uh, a number of cases seen from there. So when you talk about the devil cancer, that's you know a few decades
0: old, what do we know about the age of this dog cancer and where it came from?
3: Well, as I mentioned, this dog cancer is found all around the world, so that suggests that it must be quite old to have spread so widely, but we were interested to try to use genetics to try to actually figure out how old it might be. What we did was to sequence the entire genome of um, this dog cancer, and then to look at um, a type of mutation which is known to be acquired at a consistent rate throughout the lifetime of a cancer, and actually this has been found in human cancers. Doing this, we were able to discover that this dog cancer may have first arisen in a dog that lived about 11,000 years ago. So it's a pretty extraordinary cancer that it arose in that original dog 11,000 years ago, and rather than dying when that dog died, its cancer is still alive today having spread through the population of dogs by the transfer of, of cancer cells. How did it travel around the world? What do we know about its, its route around the world? It's a really fascinating question. Um, we don't know exactly where that original dog lived. It could have been anywhere in the world. However, we know that it probably only spread around the world about 500 years ago. So that original dog probably lived about 11,000 years ago. Probably the cancer was confined in some area of the world we don't know where for most of its history and then about 500 years ago it seems to have escaped from there and spread widely around the world and 500 years is interesting because it's around the time of the age of exploration uh, where seafarers were spreading globally much more rapidly and it's interesting to speculate that perhaps some people went to this place where CTVT first arose and took a dog from there and took it around the world and the the tumour spread very rapidly. And the rest is genetic history. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And do we know
0: anything about what this original dog who originally had the cancer might have looked like from its genetics?
3: If you think about it, the dog that first gave rise to CTVT, uh, its genome, its DNA, is actually still alive in the cancer that it gave rise to, even though that dog itself probably died 11,000 years ago. So we've been able to piece together what that original dog might have been like by looking at its DNA, the DNA of its cancer. And uh, we've been able to determine that probably it was most closely related to a group of dogs known as the ancient breed dogs, these are dogs which um, have a more ancient genetic signature. They include the East Asian breeds like Akitas and uh, African breeds like the Basenji and Northern breeds like the Alaskan Malamute and the Husky. Uh, We don't know exactly which breed it was most closely related to, but it's those types of dogs. In addition to that, we were able to look at specific genetic uh, regions which are associated with certain uh, traits in dogs like coat colour and morphology and behaviour. And we were able to determine that the dog that first got CTVT probably had a coat, which is a kind of browny grayish colored coat. It probably had pointy ears, um, probably had uh, a straight or wavy coat, and we um, were even able to determine some of its potential behavioral characteristics. So for instance, it doesn't seem to have appeared to have had a higher risk of obsessive compulsive disorder. So it's, it's really interesting that we've been able to piece together what the dog was like uh, from the cancer that it gave rise to.
0: Obviously the dog and the devil cancers seem pretty exceptional in the natural world, but are there any lessons we can take about cancer on a wider basis? And also, is there a risk that these types of transmissible cancers
3: could arise again? Cancer itself is obviously quite common um, in humans and in other animals. It's interesting then to see that transmissible cancers are so rare. We only know of two of them in nature. So that suggests that the process of going from being a cancer in one host to being a transmissible cancer which is spreading through the population is very unlikely to occur. And I think understanding what uh, changes have been acquired by uh, the genomes of these two transmissible cancers in dogs and Tasmanian devils could potentially teach us a lot about how this process has has come about. In addition I think though studying transmissible cancers and the genetics of transmissible cancers does. Uh, give us an opportunity to learn more about the evolution of cancers more generally, uh, and how cancers interact with or escape the immune system more generally, including in humans. Whether or not transmissible cancers could occur in humans, um, I think it's extremely unlikely because we've only seen transmissible cancers twice in nature. Um, However, I guess it's a a possibility we can't discount and um, it is certainly possible that it could occur one day in the future. Given that we know of two transmissible cancers in nature, it's highly likely, in fact, almost certain that transmissible cancers have occurred many times in the evolutionary past um, and possibly also caused the extinction of species in the past. However, I do think that probably Uh, they have always been a rare occurrence and uh, um, I guess it's always going to be very difficult to prove that any particular species might have gone extinct because of a transmissible cancer. And finally, what next for you? What are you going to be looking at next? My lab is very interested in understanding the evolution of transmissible cancers. So what we're doing now is looking at the genetic changes that have occurred through the population of uh, Tasmanian devil cancers and through the population of dog cancers to understand the mutations that have been acquired so that we can piece together the evolutionary path that these two cancers have taken uh, in their journeys through their respective host populations. And I think this is going to teach us a lot more about how cancers evolve in general and uh, how cancers can escape the immune system and how cancers become transmissible. That
0: was Elizabeth Murchison from the University of Cambridge.
3: And finally, it's
0: time for our gene of the month, and this time it's Shibiri, named after the Japanese word for limbs going to sleep. Shibiri is the name given to an unusual mutation in the fruit fly drosophila's dynamin gene, which normally makes a protein that helps to release tiny packets of molecules from nerve cells, enabling them to transmit information. In Shibiri mutant flies, this protein works normally at regular lab temperature, but stops functioning if it gets over 29 degrees centigrade. As a result, the flies immediately become paralysed as their nerves stop working properly and drop to the ground. But lower the temperature again and they spring right back as if nothing had happened. Since it was discovered, researchers have used the temperature-sensitive Shibiri mutation to study how fruit flies' brains work. It cropped up several times during the Genetic Society autumn meeting from scientists trying to figure out how memories are made and stored. You can see a fascinating video of this effect in action by following the link from the Gene of the Month in this month's Naked Genetics podcast page. That's nakedscientist.com slash genetics. That's all for now. I'll be back next month with more reports from the Genetics Society autumn meeting on the genetics of learning and memory, including finding out what mice on a weird wheel can tell us about how we learn to play the piano and why flies like getting drunk, even after a hangover. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet me at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes.